You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Jesus once taught a parable about two men who were building houses. One man built his house on a stone foundation. The other built his house on a foundation of sand. And if you know the parable or just the basics of general construction, then you know how the story ends. A storm comes and the storm rages against the first house, but because it's built on the stone, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't move at all because it rests on this firm, unshakable foundation. But as the storm hits this other house, whose foundation is built on the sand, the ground beneath it crumbles and the entire house falls. And as we're going to talk today about foundations and finding our security and where that comes from, I think there's another connection to the larger message of Revelation with Jesus' parable here. Because as much as we see numerology throughout the entire book of Revelation, we've seen numbers like 12 and 7 and 3 and 6 pop up over and over again for a variety of different reasons. There's another number that is implied throughout the book of Revelation, and that's the number two. Because over the course of the book of Revelation, we've seen the apostle John, as he receives this revelation from God, present to us the truth of the gospel that there are, there are two ways to live, following God and not. There are two eternal destinations for those who follow after Christ, one for those who don't, another. We've also seen a presentation of two different kinds of kingdoms, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of this world. One kingdom that's built on a rock, that's built on the truth of the gospel, that's built on an eternal God constructing and shaping it and redeeming it for his purpose and his glory, and another kingdom that is destined to crumble. And as we're in this book of Revelation, on this trajectory towards the end of the book where we see God bring the fullness of his creation, his redemption into play, he first has to send a storm to bring to end the kingdom that has tried to stand against him and stand in his way. And as we've been in the heart of the book of Revelation, we've seen God dealing with his enemies, spiritual and otherwise. And here we see in chapters 17 and 18 that we'll be in for the next couple weeks, the fullness of the downfall of the enemies of God making way for Christ to bring about the fullness of his kingdom. And so today we're going to read through the entirety of chapter 17 and the first 10 verses of chapter 18. And I know this is a big chunk and it's kind of heavy. And so hang with me as we go through this and we recognize the power of God against his enemies. This is the word of God in Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual adultery, immorality, and with wine, whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. 
And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And there are also seven kings, five of whom who have fallen. One is the other who has not come. And when he does, he must only remain for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the 10 horns that you, are, that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received their royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Those are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and the multitudes and nations and languages and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and from the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual adultery and immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear for torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. 
May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that you make. And God, we thank you for just your righteousness and your goodness. And we pray as we look through this difficult text that you help us to see your beauty and your grace even in the midst of your judgment and that you help us to recognize the great need for your people to reflect your light, your goodness, and your love everywhere that we go. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I feel like it's nice to start off the new year with such a light and positive and enjoyable passage. But it is a new year, and with that comes a lot of new feelings. You start to, to decide some things that are going to change between 2019 and 2020. And yes, it's a fairly arbitrary number, but it's something that helps us. We like milestones and markers. And so every year, on the last day of the year, Stephanie and I sit down and we think about the upcoming year. We make some plans, we set some goals, make some resolutions for things that we want to see individually and as a couple and as a family and all these things because it just feels like a time when everything is new and we have the ability to make those changes. I don't know why we need some of those markers to do it, but we kind of do. And one of the things that happens to me, people talk a lot of times about spring cleaning, but I get just an urge for New Year's purging, right? Because there's new stuff that's entered our house because Christmas, and especially with children, there are new things that have invaded my home and it gets cluttery and those things don't have homes. And so I just start looking for things to get rid of because I have a tendency to collect and to hoard. And so I, I balance that in my life by just a joy in purging things. But as much as I love it, when I get down to it, because I go in with this mindset of I'm going to get rid of junk. I'm so excited about it. I'm passionate about it. I have trash bags with me. I have boxes with me. Everything's ready to go. And then I went upstairs into my room because we had recently turned what used to be my office into now this just over-the-top music studio for the kids. There's lights that are all over the wall. It's really over-the-top. And they're getting really weird with some of the songs they're writing. I'll tell you about them later. But... And so I'm looking through all of my art supplies and all of my office supplies, trying to purge some things that could come and go. And I started having really difficult processes of getting rid of some of these things, things that absolutely have no place in my life or in my home. For instance, one thing in particular that I was really struggling with just throwing away was this little key that went to this clock. We'd bought this nice mid-century clock probably, what, 10 years ago? Maybe when we first got married or the year after we got married, really early on in our marriage, we bought this great starburst clock because all of our, all the furniture in our house was between 1940 and 1960s for a while. And then we had children. And then we were like, how did anyone ever survive the 1950s? Because all of this furniture is so sharp and seems just like death waiting to happen. And so we got rid of all of it. But we had this clock and it was an old school clock, didn't have a battery. It had the little key that you put in and you wound up and it never worked because who thinks to put a key in and wind the clock up? And so it was just wall decor anyway. So this key was in a drawer somewhere and had not been used for nine years. And now I'm looking at it, even though we sold the clock probably five years ago, thinking, I don't know, I might need it again. And it's weird that it's hard to get rid of things like that. But it's because, as we've talked about before, there's something to having material objects that gives us a sense of security. Because in my mind, even though I had a clock that would never use that. I don't use a clock. I'm not sure that we have a working clock in our house because we have them in our pockets. And so I don't understand this mentality, but I thought there may be a chance that I have a purely mechanical clock again. And what if it doesn't come with a key? I won't have the security to make it work. 
But it gives us this feeling of security. And sometimes it's small and trivial things. Sometimes it's much bigger and more important things. But we build this connection and this feeling of security, especially with the material things that make up our lives. That's why we have this desire to hoard and collect so often. When we looked at Revelation chapter 13, and we saw this portrayal of the spiritual enemies of God and this language that John uses, he describes them as this, this beast, this great beast that was making war against the people of God. One of the things that John illuminated to us about how the enemy of God works, how God's spiritual enemies work, is they try to appeal to the hearts and minds of people by providing security and comfort. There was the wow of miracles and performances and, and trying to appease our, our eyes and our minds, but also trying to speak to our hearts saying, if you just follow after me, God can't keep you safe. God can't provide you security. But if you follow after me, I can and I will. And we see a little picture of that here in chapter 17. Because even though we have this incredibly harsh language describing this, this prostitute that represents a city, that represents something even deeper than that, what we have here is a picture of incredible extravagance adorned with purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls, holding a golden cup in her hand. What we see here is a picture of incredible riches and prosperity. To the point where, as John is looking at this, as something that he clearly knows is contrary to the nature of who God is and who Christ has called him to be, he looks at this picture of this woman that represents this city, that represents the spiritual antithesis and enemies of God. He looks at it and he marvels and he's amazed by it to the point where the angel has to say, stop, stop marveling about this. And what we see in this passage is a, a kind of a two-layer symbol or picture here. This prostitute whose name is Babylon. And again, the, the help for us when trying to interpret these things is looking at the Old Testament. And the city of Babylon represented this great threat to the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, but especially during the time of their exile. And so it makes sense that John would attach that kind of a name to the enemy of the people of God and to the enemies of God. And when you look at some of this imagery, and we're not going to break down all of the, the, the Ten Kings and all these kind of things, but you can interpret that to be a description of, of really the city and history of ancient Rome, which was the city under which John was living in exile. And so again, connecting Babylon to Rome is tying this idea of threat and danger to the people of God in these embodiments, in these physical cities. But clearly underneath that, John is using this picture of ancient Rome to describe the spiritual danger and exile that comes from the enemies of God. And so this city represents the spiritual opposition to God and his kingdom. And what we see is this picture of incredible power. The city of Babylon was known for its riches and its wealth and its prosperity and its power. The same thing with the city of Rome. Rome was a kingdom like the world had never seen before with incredible power and authority and dominion. And so we see this wealth and this riches now represented spiritually in all the things that the, the contrary world around us offers us to pull us and allure us away from God. And so many of these things, as we see the riches and prosperity and even the immorality these are things that are often connected to what might be called freedom, 
or living the kind of life that we want to have apart from God. No one to tell us no, no one to draw borders or boundaries around how we can live. Just whatever you want, as much as you want, your need for security can be filled, but not only security, but excess and riches and glory, all of those things. We could be gluttons because of all the things that these kingdoms of the world offer. And yet, all of this is on display in the midst of a wilderness. As John sees this incredible picture of this mighty city, it's all happening in the midst of desolation and nothing. And when we think about this in spiritual terms, there's so many things that, that call to our hearts, things that present temporary prosperity, things that present temporary comfort, temporary security, temporary life that we want to live and things that appeal to all of our wants and our desires and our temptations. And so it can be very easy to look at the things around us that are calling for our attention and our affections, which is an important word here because all of this language about sexuality and prostitution is, is coming from the prophets of the Old Testament where the people of God, the Israelite people, were looking to other gods and to other kings to find their hope and their security. And the prophets used that language of basically, you're, you're running around on God. You're cheating on God. He's the one that you need. He can provide for you, and yet you're looking for all of these different places. And now we see the warning about doing that spiritually as well. Because none of this is real. It's like fool's gold in the midst of a stream. It's a mirage in the desert. It's a city that has great glory, but built in the middle of wilderness and destruction, and it will all soon pass away. We see in Scripture over and over again warnings against the love of money and the hope that can be put in material things that can pass away. A warning against seeking after fame and renown because all of these things are built on fragile foundations that at a moment's notice could fall and pass away. And the Bible is constantly calling us to come back to keeping the truth of the gospel and reminding ourselves of the frailty of the kingdom this world is building all around us and calling us to be steadfast in the truth of God's kingdom that will never pass away. And so as we look at this, it's important for us to recognize that, yes, the world around us can offer something that is marvelous looking, that seems to answer all of our needs and check all of our boxes, but the reality is it absolutely will fall away. And so our calling here is to find our true security in the imperishable, unshakable kingdom of God, no matter what the temporary cost may be. Because as Jesus says, what does it profit us? to gain our lives but lose our souls. And we need to learn to think spiritually and eternally about our lives and the foundation and security in which we find here and now and for all of eternity. And chapter 18 comes. And this incredibly great city that's presented to us in chapter 17 is suddenly in a much different state. Verses one through three, it says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. 
And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so what's amazing here is we've seen all kinds of different symbols and, and things pop up through the book of Revelation. Some of them go thematically all the way through the book. Some of them just appear and then disappear. John is helping us to grab onto this big picture of what God is doing in and through our world throughout our history. But this city literally pops up in chapter 17. And then by chapter 18 is fallen. And that seems really fast. For this city that's described as great and marvelous and, and has this connection to the spiritual enemies of God, it seems incredible that it would come so greatly in chapter 17 and then seemingly burn out so quickly in chapter 18. And so we have to ask, what, what happened? What makes the difference here? And I love what, what's said here in, in verse 1 of chapter 18 where this angel comes down from heaven and he has great authorities commissioned by God to come out from heaven. And it says that the earth was made bright with his glory. And I love this picture here because it reminds us of the power that light has over darkness. And when the glory of heaven begins to reveal itself, all the glories of this world are shown to be exactly what they are, empty and fallen. Because it can be easy to see something as incredible and awesome and glorious, unless you have something better to compare it to. For instance, if perhaps you've never had Waffle House before and you eat Waffle House and you think, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I've never had such a thing in my life. And then a week later, you go to Cup and Saucer and you eat Cup and Saucer and you think, Waffle House is trash <laughs> by comparison to the glories of I will defend this till my dying day. If you want to fight, we'll fight about it. It's that much better because once you have it, once you have the real thing, you recognize what the counterfeit really is. And on a much more profound level here, John sees this city that is filled with immorality and wickedness and brokenness. And even as John, the apostle of Christ who walked with Jesus, who has now seen Jesus in the fullness of his resurrection, glory and power, as he sees this city that represents everything that God is not and everything contrary to the way a follower of Christ should live, he looks at it and he says, that's kind of awesome. Like he marvels and he wonders at that city. But then the glory of heaven enters in. And all of a sudden, what looks like riches and glory and wonder is shown to be empty and meaning and desolate. And as we see this city fallen, the obituary is pretty rough. The angel cries out that this great city, and even, even in this passage, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. But then it's just line after line after line of how wicked and broken and corrupt and empty, it really is. This passage shows us the incredible power that the gospel has over evil. 
It shows us the incredible power that God has over his enemies, the incredible power that light has over darkness. And what we see here is that this, this kingdom that looks so big and so powerful that seemed to have no end to its reach and its, its authority is now shown to be very small and very fragile and falling away. And just like starlight in the night sky, so are the kingdoms of this world. Because they appear to shine bright, but in reality, they're already passing away. And we have this promise inside the book of Revelation and throughout the rest of scripture that one day Christ will come again and with the light of his glory, he's going to expose and lay bare all the false kingdoms of this world. And when we come and we see Christ in comparison to all these things that seem to have this, this promise of security and hope and glory for us, when we see the fullness of Christ, we'll realize exactly how small and meaningless these things are. But even still, as this passage goes on, as this passage continues, and we look next week at chapter 18 and even into part of chapter 19, as this judgment is coming, as God is bringing his wrath and judgment against the enemies of his throne, against the spiritual principalities of this world that are trying to lure people away from him, there's still people falling away, still people mourning the loss of Babylon as we see through the rest of chapter 18. Still people desperately trying to find their hope and their security somewhere else. And wickedness and evil and sin still have their presence. And as we've looked through Revelation, we've thought a lot about the how longs of Scripture, the how longs of the psalmist, the how longs of the prophets, the how longs of the martyrs around the throne, where people cry out to God saying, how long are you going to allow wickedness? How long are you going to allow sin and evil and sickness and death and all of these things that clearly don't belong in this world? How long are you going to allow these things to exist? Because there's a feeling inside of us that evil and brokenness and sin has just always been around and always will be. And even in the narrative of scripture, we see that basically as long as, as there has been humanity, sin and evil and wickedness has been a regular ongoing part. And so it's easy to start to feel like there's no escape to this. This is something that's just going to last forever because it feels so long. But remember, as we saw in Peter's letter, that a thousand years is like a day to God and a day is like a thousand years. And so what we see is this immeasurable span of time that evil has seemingly had its reign in God's good and perfect creation. God sees that as just a moment. And even though sin and immorality seem so big and present, they are really a very small season in the light of eternity. And as we're promised here in this passage of scripture, they will one day quickly come to an end. Look at these last few verses in the passage we're looking at today. as we see the fall and the end of this city that represents everything against God and his kingdom. It says, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And then continue on in verse 10, talking about all of these people that participate in her wickedness. It says, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. 
And again, looking at just the numbers that happen in Revelation, as John has described the, the struggle and the suffering that the church has experienced throughout the last 2,000 years and as long as, as God sees fit, he uses language like three and a half years, which again seems very small. But now here in comparison to the fall of evil and wickedness, that seems like a very big span of time. Because as all these people look over the fall of God's enemy, they say it happened so fast. It was like it was in a single day. It was like a single hour. The city had its reign all over God's creation. And then in just a moment, God has brought back and redeemed his creation once and for all. And another thing that we see that's so powerful in this passage is that as the spiritual Babylon falls, God calls his church out. And again, as we've talked about, this isn't some, some weird sweeping away and taking the church off somewhere else, but the, the language here is that God is calling his people out of sin. He's calling his people out of shame and wickedness and evil and idolatry. He's calling his, city, his people out of one city and into another. And this so neatly ties up a prayer that Jesus prayed before his crucifixion. As Jesus is praying for his disciples and for all those who would follow after them, he makes a specific request that God wouldn't take them away from the world, but would leave them in the world to continue his work and his ministry. And we have this calling in scripture that as followers of Christ, we are meant to be in the world, working in the world, loving the people of this world, but to not be of the world, to keep ourselves from falling into this idolatry and this immorality. But we have this picture here that there will be a day when God brings the final judgment on his enemies, that he will preserve and restore his people. And he'll establish us in a city that he is building, one that will never fade or never pass away. And when we see that come in Revelation 21 and 22, we'll see the incredible contrast between a city built in the wilderness destined for destruction and one built by God in heaven brought to earth for us but we'll get there later. So what do we do with this? Because this is a heavy passage. This is a difficult passage. And there doesn't seem to be much in here dealing with those who have followed after Christ. This seems to be very much just God bringing judgment and wrath against his enemies. But as we look at this passage, I think there's a few things that are important for followers of Christ to do here. And one is to remember and we've talked about this so often, the importance of remembering all the things that God has done. As Amy was leading us in prayer to remember back on the things that God has provided and the prayers that God has answered, remembering the works of God is one of the things that inspires and strengthens our faith. But here, John is calling us to remember the frailty and the falseness of the kingdoms of this world. Because there are times when we're struggling, there are times when we feel insecure. There are times when God feels far off or distant and the things around us that are vying for our attention, they seem much more close and they seem much easier. And so we look around and we say, here's a way that I can fulfill this need. Here's a way that I can fulfill this hope and this dream. And maybe I don't really need God at all. And yeah, maybe I've got to check some of my morality. Yes, I need to check some of my righteousness, but it's worth it to have this feeling of security and comfort and peace that I don't feel like I'm finding from God right now. 
But as we see this passage of scripture, as John is showing us the end of these kingdoms, the end of these temptations, the end of these kind of lifestyles, we need to remember to build our hope and find our security in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. To never take our eyes off of Christ. To never forget the promises of God and the hope that we have in Jesus. To constantly remember who God is and the radiance of his glory so that we don't find ourselves falling into temptation and sin. But not only do we remember, we also need to learn to see and to see with eternal eyes. We know that when Jesus rebuked Peter before they move into Jerusalem, he rebuked him because not simply because Peter was ready to fight, but because he told Jesus he wasn't going to allow him to die. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're thinking very small here. You're thinking about the temporary things you need to see with eternal eyes. In the same way, we need to learn to look past temporary riches and glories and securities and see the world through the eyes of the eternal Christ. And recognize, as Paul did, that even if we suffer in this life, that our suffering is very small compared to the glory that we have in Christ Jesus that our waiting is very short compared to the eternity where we get to spend in the fullness of the presence of God, that anything that we have to endure for the cause of Christ or the sake of the kingdom is worth it because even though it feels like a long time to us, we know that we're not working on a temporal 70, 80 year timeline, but we're promised that anyone who trusts in Christ, who believes in Jesus won't perish, but will have life everlasting. And so we need to learn to see the world with eternal eyes. And we also need to hope. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. So many times through the book of Revelation, we see the theme and the message of hope. Hope in the midst of good times, hope in the midst of things going really well and moving exactly as we had hoped they would be, but also hope in the midst of devastating and harsh times. Hoping for the day when God will put to rest all of his enemies and these things that vie for our affections and our attentions and make it so difficult to love and to worship and to honor Christ. He'll take all of those things and remove them from his world and in their place build a good and perfect city where we get to rest in Christ for all of eternity. So as we recognize the fall here of God's enemy, as his people, as his children, it's our calling as we wait for Christ to come and to redeem and restore our world that we would remember with minds renewed by the gospel. We would see with eyes illuminated with the light of Christ and to hope with hearts that are restored by the Holy Spirit of God. And as we do that, to use our lives to share that with the world and be little beacons of light. As we remember our candlelight service from just a few weeks ago, that reminder that each and every one of us has been given the light of God through the Holy Spirit, and it's our responsibility to go out and to cast light into darkness, to expose things that are fleeting and perishable, but also to bring redemption and restoration where we can, and to, with our words and our lives, proclaim the gospel until the day when we can't do it any longer. Next week, we're going to look at the aftermath of this and the mourning and the brokenness that goes along with seeing a kingdom fall in on itself. But thanks be to God, we don't have to worry about that in Christ because we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so let's find our hope, our peace, our security, and our comfort there until the day when we get to receive it in full. Let's pray.
Father God, as we just try our best to stumble through these passages that are so overwhelming and, and at times difficult, God, I pray that you help us to see the truth of the gospel in each page. That we recognize as we sang that you are powerful beyond measure. And that no other God, no other kingdom, no other principality or ideology can stand against you. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. My God, as much as we know that in our hearts, sometimes it's easy to forget. And so I pray as we see the end of the false kingdoms of this world, as we see the end of sin and wickedness and temptation, these things that often look so good and so hopeful and so wonderful to us, God, that you would help to reveal those things as shallow, empty, and fallen. And that as we see the truth of what they are, that we would be drawn to the truth of who you are alone are good and glorious and awesome and wonderful, and that you are a foundation on which we can build our lives without fear or hesitation because we know that you will never fade, you will never pass away, and neither will the kingdom that you're building. So God, just help us to live as, as residents of eternity right here and right now. Remember with your mind, to see with your eyes, and to hope with the heart that you have restored through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.